The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. I've been really encouraged by the people that say yes to this podcast, Holly. Mm-hmm. I say that because a lot of times when we ask and then they say yes, and we're like, oh, really? Oh, that's that's really nice of you. It's true. It's very, very true. And it's nice when we have such a diverse, uh, incredible bunch of people talking about their lives because everyone's a different place. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of our theme for 2023 is no matter where you are, God's going to be walking with you throughout your life journey. Yeah. And so who better to talk to us about uh, his own life, but uh, pastor, author, blogger, Tim Challies, my friend, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. It's nice to talk to a fellow Canadian today. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. A. Oh, let's see. That's not. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I don't feel like that's us. Oh, then all. I said sorry again. So uh, okay. this, that's more us. The Canadianisms um, are strong today. Tim, we like to ask this skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. And that is, who are you and where did you come from? I'm Tim Challies. I am an author, pastor, blogger, writer, and so on. I live in Oakville, Ontario. With what, what? My, uh, yeah, there you go. Just just slightly north of where you are. Yeah. Um, I live with my wife, Aileen. We've been married for 20, coming up in 25 years now. We have three kids. I've got a daughter who is 16 years old in high school. I've got a daughter who's 20 years old in college, and she's married to Nate. And I've got a son who passed away a couple of years ago. He's waiting for me in heaven. Was the goal, and I mean, did you grow up in church? Did, was your dad a pastor? Because a lot of times when you talk to pastors, it's because their family were pastors and the pastors onto the pastors onto the pastors. Yeah, good question. My dad was not a pastor. My parents were uh, raised in Quebec and um, they, in their college years, ran into a bunch of Pentecostals on the uh, campus of their university who told them about Jesus. And both of them were of that era, you know, that wandering era. And neither had ever heard the gospel before. Both, as soon as they heard it, thought that makes sense of life. And so they came to faith. They uh, got married and took a honeymoon in Switzerland and ran into a guy there named Francis Schaefer and spent quite a lot of time with the Schaefer family. And so came back to Toronto after some time as committed Presbyterian. So I was raised in the Presbyterian churches and then in the Dutch Reformed churches. And then uh, after we had kids and it came time to baptize them, I realized, oh, shoot, I don't believe in that. And so we became Baptists. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) The joys of just so many different denominations. It's always very interesting to me. Just, you know, sometimes you just got to go around and see what fits best for you. Yeah, and it's it's a fascinating thing. I, I remember asking a, a Christian leader once, why do you think God allows this, these, all these mm. denominations? And who really knows? But it's a fascinating thing. And it's a bit of a privilege we have living in a country like this one, where we can get very, very particular with what we believe and find the church that really best adheres to all that we adhere to. And I know I've traveled the world extensively. I know that's a privilege we enjoy that many others do not. Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> Do you think it's a negative thing, though, that we are so particular uh, of what we want and where we want it and how we want it? Yeah, I think it can be. I mean, we can be we're very individualistic. We like our world personalized. I'm pretty sure we all have a phone, but probably all have different cases and different wallpapers. And this is our way of That's being good. conformist, but particular conformist. You know, yeah. we, we express our individuality by all doing roughly the same thing. 
And uh, when it comes to churches, yeah, I think it can be a negative in that we can get too particular and uh, cut the lines a little too fine. Which makes it then challenging to relate to people who may not be in the church. Yeah, and it, it can be a challenge to relate to people who are Christians, but who are from a different denomination or different tradition. And um, I, I think even while we follow our convictions, we do need to admit that uh, God gives people different convictions and we're to hold to those matters of conscience and conviction. And uh, I, I assume the Lord will sort it all out eventually. When did you realize, when did you have that call that, you know what, becoming a pastor was where you thought you needed to be or where God wanted you to be? I, I think I came to faith when I was in my young teenage years, you know, being raised in a Christian home. There comes a point where you have to decide, am I just following behind my parents or do I really believe this myself? Yeah. And it was in my young teen years that I thought, no, I really believe this. I'm truly wanting to follow Christ. So even if my parents turn away, I'm going to press on. I think most Christian kids, you know, kids raised in Christian homes have that that moment or a similar one. And uh, right away, I began to think a little bit about ministry, but I'm an extremely shy person, very, at the time, very poor public speaker, no desire to be in front of people. So I just sort of put it on the, the back shelf. I, I was at McMaster University. I took a couple of Greek courses, you know, thinking, well, maybe I would head into ministry, but shelved that just because of my personality. But uh after being a Christian for some time and growing a little, I, people approached me and said, what do you think about being a pastor in this church, being an elder in this church? And I just felt that, no, I think the Lord's calling me to that. I think he's going to enable me to do it. And so I had to set aside natural personality and just jump into it. And God's really been kind to me and blessed me in that. Do you feel different being on stage to when you're off stage because of somebody who is so shy? Sometimes people take on, in some ways, a different persona. Yeah, I really tried not to be a different person in public or on at the front of a church than I am in private. But definitely it taxes somebody who's very introverted. And I'll, I'll preach a couple of times and be utterly exhausted after. And I mm. think it's just part of the the um, necessary extroversion that comes with with preaching. But, um, you know, the very first time I, I ever did public speaking, I, I went to a conference. I was invited to this conference down in the States, and there were two much more prominent, much more experienced speakers there. And then me, and I, I did my best. And a guy came up to me afterward and said, have you ever read any books on public speaking? Oh, I said, no. no. He goes, yeah, you probably should. <laughs> and uh, that was my, that was my introduction to, oh, so this is what it means to, to preach and to speak. And yeah. uh, I think the Lord's helped me get a little bit better than that anyway. So at least I, <laughs> nobody's asked me that question in some time anyways. That's a win. <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, it's interesting because Halls and I have had a chance to talk with a lot of pastors and and public speakers and that, and it's and it's that finding your voice and figuring out like I like this pastor, but I don't want to sound like this pastor because he's from the south, or I like this pastor, but he's from Ireland and mm -hmm. my Irish accent's terrible. <laughs> what did you have to do in order to find that voice and you know be authentically Tim? Yeah, it's a good question. I think most of us begin by imitating somebody. It might mm. be some famous guy. It might be the pastor in our own church or something. We all begin with imitation and over time start to develop our own voice. And I think that's okay. But, you know, some of the worst sermons you'll ever hear are guys trying to be John Piper or someone like oh. that because they've got oh. all the zeal, but none of the godliness or experience and so it comes across as just very forced and inauthentic. But over time, you do develop your your own voice. And some people are more natural storytellers. Some people are more natural just giving objective truth. Some people illustrate well, some don't. And I think just 
the more you go, you know, as you preach 100, 200 times, whatever it is, I think you really start to then figure out who you are and how you can best serve people. I love how you are an introvert and yet you are allowing God to use you in a way that's probably not what you would naturally gravitate towards. It reminds me of Moses and just some of those Bible characters where they're like, oh God, please don't put me in that situation. <laughs> and and yet God fills in the gaps. Has there ever been a moment where you're like, ah, maybe I should really just do something else compared to what I'm doing right now? Or is this just really, you know, you found your groove and you've been able to expand and, and reach people in a, in a better, different, maybe more effective way because of the start in, in being a pastor. Yeah, I've thought a lot about Moses and every year about January 30th on my Bible reading plan, I come to Exodus 6 yeah. or whatever it is where <laughs> Moses is saying, hey, God, probably I'm not your guy. Yeah. And um, that's a challenge every year. And I really appreciate coming across it every year and being forced to confront it again. Um I'm still a writer more than anything. So writing is my main voice. I do do public speaking as well, but writing is definitely my, my sweet spot, my comfort zone and so on. But you know what? I realized long ago that introversion is not an excuse for anything. I, I want to be a dutiful introvert. And so if I think God is calling me to do something, to speak publicly, to speak boldly, to just go against my personality, then I just need to do that. Sometimes introverts need to speak up. Sometimes extroverts need to shut up and we don't, get to just plead personality. We get to do what God is calling us to do in, in life and in a moment. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you said the writing side of things, because I was going to ask is being an author and a blogger, is it easier because there is a little more anonymity and you don't have all those eyes looking at you all the time? Yeah, I think so. I made a mistake at the get go by naming my site after myself. So it's <laughs> not really anonymous. It's, it's maybe invisible, but it's not anonymous. And, yeah. you know, I named it after myself because it was supposed to be a family site, just Chally's news for other Chally's people. Mm. Um, turns out other people started reading it and so on. So and that's fine. But yeah, it's not really anonymous. But I do love the writing. I just love I'm in my little basement office. Now I could sit here endlessly and just write and you know, I, I did a lot of speaking, a lot of travel prior to COVID and all, all that got pulled away through the pandemic. And I really didn't miss it much. You know, maybe after a couple of years, I was ready to go again. But I really enjoyed that part of just being here, developing the writer routines and so on. I love how I think it was maybe even, oh, goodness, probably 15, 20 years ago, blogging was like, that's the way you reach people, creating these blogs. How was the transition for you from being more uh, forward facing with the preaching to now diving more into being able to articulate your thoughts and having an audience that was unseen, but still your words impacting them? Yeah. Yeah, blogging was social media around 20 years ago. We need to remember that social media yeah. grew up and there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook and there's no video, any of these video yeah. things now, uh, those social media. So it, it was the thing and it was the way we expressed our, our perspectives. It was the way that the little people got a voice away from the editors of magazines, the editors of books and so on. And so I love blogging. I still think it's a very relevant medium, even as others have come along and are also, I think, equally relevant. Uh, I think one of the moments came where I went to a conference for the first time, having been a writer for a number of years, and I went to a conference and people started meeting me. And I think that was when worlds collided. Um, you know, I started having my comfortable inner world and then my anonymous outer world. And eventually those started to to collide and conflate. And that was okay. It just took some some getting used to. But yeah, again, I, I really enjoy 
um, meeting people and spending time with them, even if it is, you know, taxing as an introvert. I don't think that'll ever stop, but I really do enjoy meeting people and just hearing how maybe the writing has been um, a blessing to them in some way. When we talk with musical artists, they, they talk uh, as music is a form of therapy for them because they're able to write out songs and ideas and, and put them in, into a song. Uh, you know, there's there's different forms of therapy and talk therapy. Do you feel as though perhaps writing for you is a form of therapy? 100%. Absolutely. Writing is the way I think. Writing is the way I meditate. Writing is the way I process things. I don't really even know what I believe or what my convictions are until I write them out. And part of that is I've just got a very poor memory. So I can't hold much in my mind at once. I've got to write it out and then I can go back and, and go over it a few times. I, I was really helped a while back. I was on a panel and the other guy on the panel or one of them was a theologian teaches at a seminary. I mean, top of his field type theologian. And we got a list of questions before we went out on the stage. And one of them was theological in nature. And I saw him take out his iPad. He looked at the question, took out his iPad, swiped to the sermon he had preached on that topic to remember what he believes about that topic. And Mm. I thought, that's so helpful to know. I'm not the only one who writes things down in part. So I just know what I believe and can, Mm. can go back to it. I love that. That's why I like to journals because it's like, it's up here. It could be just in bits and pieces, but when it goes from pen to paper or fingers to computer, it really solidifies what you believe and then also helps you shape it in a different kind of way too. Maybe that wasn't the mark. Uh, So it makes sense that, you know, as you've developed as a writer that now you've written books and you've been able to write books in a way that have helped you navigate some really challenging you know, personal moments. And I kind of want to talk about your new book and um, what happened with your son in 2020. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the backstory, if you will, to the book is my son, Nick, was a seminary student at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary down in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, newly engaged to a delightful young lady named Rin, and uh, just really doing well in life and looking forward to uh, to adult life, you know, as he was uh, progressing into it. And then just very suddenly, November of 2020, he just passed away in an instant. He just collapsed mm-hmm. to the ground. He was out uh, joining an activity with some friends at the seminary. He collapsed and was gone and nobody was able to to revive him. And so this came as a obviously a complete shock and, and horror to, to us. We were back here in Canada. You remember this was COVID. The borders were functionally closed, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it was just a really traumatic time. And um, out of that, I just started writing. As I said earlier, writing is how I think and process things. And so even on that first night, as we were starting to make our way south, I just started to write. And um, that writing eventually progressed into what's now the book, Seasons of Sorrow. Um, 2020, you know, November, we are aware of COVID. We've had initial phases of lockdowns, hoping that it'll be done by Christmas. And then navigating this loss uh, in your family how how has your family been able to cope knowing that you had to grieve loss in a time where it wasn't we weren't able to grieve the way we're used to it was awful um it was awful what we had to do to to just be able to do normal things so the funeral for example we got the word the day before nick's funeral so we had a memorial service down in the states and then had a funeral up here in canada of course, nobody from Canada really could go down to the States. Nobody from the States come up to Canada. So that's why we had to have two services. And we got the word before the day before the funeral that the government was changing the rules and that only 50 people could get into that building. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there were lots of people who wanted to care for us and support us and just be there for us. And so we, we ended up having to, it's so ridiculous, but plead with the funeral home. If you just leave the property, then we can call this a church service. And then we can be at 50% capacity in this building and we can get several hundred people in here. And, um, you know, then we went to the, for the interment service at the cemetery and they're only allowed 15 people. And it was just, when we go back there, you realize just some of the, the things we were up against. And then we had just come back from the state. So two weeks, we weren't allowed to leave the house. Nobody was allowed onto our property under yeah. pain of imprisonment. And so it was a very, very difficult time. But the Lord was very kind to us, and people loved us as best as they were able to. And God really cared for us and provided for us. So we, we have no animosity. It's just the reality of the way it was. And, uh, again, the Lord was so kind to us. It's always so interesting when there's somebody who's going through loss because the community wants to rally around, but in other ways, we don't know how to rally around properly. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's nice to hear that you had a community that were able to do that for you. Yeah. And I want to say when we talk about that as Christians, we're usually thinking about Christian community. You know, Christians will surround us and love us. And, and of course they will. But our community around us in our neighborhood was so kind to us too. And every bit as, mm. as compassionate, um, every bit as much just caring for us, caring for our needs. And that was just a, a real encouragement. And I think a bit of a challenge for us personally that I think sometimes we do things thinking we're doing them because we're Christian, but maybe we're doing them just because we're human and mm. God's image is, <laughs> you know, we're all made in God's image and we act that out at times. And, so I think it was a good challenge sometimes. Am I really behaving in a Christian way? Am I really honoring the Lord through this? Am I just doing what, what people do? Yeah. So he passes beginning of November. Is everything kind of, does everything fall into place? Boom, boom, boom. Or was there a lot of issues with, I mean, autopsies and there's all these other things that we don't think about and the fact that he's in a completely different country. Yeah, no, there were, there were definitely complications. Um, there had to be an autopsy because of the unusual circumstances. They had to make sure nothing, uh, you know, had been murdered or something like that or ingested something. And it turned up absolutely nothing, of course. And yeah, then his body somehow, we had to hire a, a firm that this is what they do, transport bodies and all of that. So it was a, meanwhile, we were locked in our home, unable to leave, et cetera. And so it was just a, there were a lot of logistics. And, you know, one of the odd things about a loss is you're going through this grievous time. Your, your heart's broken. You can't think. You can't do much of anything. And yet you have to make decision after decision. There's all these logistics that have to happen, all this administration and bills to be paid and all that. So it's a very, just a perplexing, unusual time that, I w- you know, nobody would ever want to go back to once they've done it. You talk about in your book, too, about God's comfort. How did you feel God's comfort during this season and then moving ahead? I mean, we're in 2023. And so how how's that been for you, that process? The book really maps out the first year. So the, the first words of the book were written on the evening Nick died as we're heading south. And the last words were written on the first anniversary of his death. So it sort of charts that first year in just a real time Here's what a dad is going through as he grieves the loss of his son. And, um, yeah, the Lord was, was very present with us. And I, I think what we should expect as Christians is that God will be present in his word, which is we've got the Bible, which is God's word. And so God will speak to us through the Bible. 
um, God is present through his spirit, his spirit. We're indwelled by his spirit. And so whatever that means, we feel, we sense, we know God's nearness and his comfort internally. And then God is present through his people. And so even when people couldn't be actually in our home, they were at the end of our driveway, you know, bringing us things and they were Mm. praying for us and setting up zoom calls and just doing whatever they could do, covering the expenses for the, the funeral, all those sorts of things. And so we really knew that God was with us in it. We never at all doubted God's kindness and his mercy and his compassion toward us. One of the things that I don't think we realize is, is that we all grieve very differently. And you, uh, it's therapeutic for you to write. Um, I remember hearing Toby Mack talk about the loss of his son and how he was able to utilize music as therapy, but his wife was grieving very differently, didn't want to bring up uh, their son. Um, being married and married for 25 years, how is it navigating as a couple with you grieving a certain way and your wife perhaps very differently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we often talk about love languages. And, um, you know, I think we're all familiar with that terminology. But it was only through Nick's death that I came to see that there's essentially grief languages as well. Mm which on the one hand is really obvious, but it just means that we all grieve in different ways. And some of it, I think, is specific to to function or role. So a a man is probably going to grieve somewhat differently than a woman, and a father is probably going to grieve somewhat differently than a mother, Um, of course, because we're just so, we play such a different role in the lives of our, our children. And then there's personality distinctions as well. And so where I wanted to process externally, but in writing, someone else may want to process externally through speaking. Mm. Or I think my wife would be more like what you described. Um, Toby Mac's wife would be is she didn't want to, she was willing to look at it sort of sideways and take glances at her grief, but not really able to stare at it or confront it. And I think the challenge then is that we're prone to think our way is the right way. And that if others are grieving differently, they must be wrong. And so we can start to judge one another, disparage one another, or think, well, based on the way you're grieving, you probably didn't love them as much as I did. Or based on the way you're grieving, you should, you should just be over it by now. And so we have to just extend so much mercy and compassion to one another to allow us to grieve in accordance with who God has made us to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it used to be customary where you had to grieve for a full year, Um which makes sense. You can grieve in the different seasons on the different um, special dates that you would have shared. I, I think it's important for us to remember that we have to leave space for grief. Grief is such a weird thing. I mean, one day you're feeling fine. And then, you know, if I hear um, Kirk Franklin's smile, I think instantly of my grandmother and the pain of losing her. And I'm like back to square one again. And that was mm. seven years ago. So yeah. it's its own little, own little monster. Yeah. And, you know, you don't ever get over grief. I mean, there's a sense in which you progress through it, but, uh, you know, life beats us up. I think by the time a a Christian is old, they're, they're ready to go and be with Jesus. And part of that is just life has beat you up so much. There is just so, there's joys in this life. Absolutely. We experience true, true joys, but we experience deep, deep sorrows and they leave their mark on us. We don't ever get over them. But we look forward to what lies beyond, we look forward to being with Christ and to having our, our tears finally dried and our sorrows finally soothed permanently forever. As a writer and somebody who has uh, authored a number of things, was it, did it make sense for you to write this book and have this book the way it was? Was this 
I mean, nobody wants to uh, write a book about, you know, the loss of their son, but did you feel like this was kind of the perfect means to honor your son, but also your family? Yeah, it became that. It, sure. When I first started writing, it was just writing. There was no book in mind. It was just getting ideas down and processing what was going on internally in my own heart and mind. But after a number of months, maybe five, six, seven months or something, I started to think, you know, maybe I could collect this because I was putting some of it out on my blog, some of these writings and finding other people that was resonating with them and other people who were going through loss started to get in touch and saying, hey, thanks for that article. My child just died. It was very helpful to me. And so uh, eventually I thought, yeah, I think this could be helpful. And and also I'd gone back in history and started reading other books about loss and realizing this is the mm-hmm. way many people have processed their losses to try and eventually help others through it. To, and part of that is we just admit that God is sovereign over this world. And this loss didn't happen apart from God's will. This wasn't this wasn't Satan's will, ultimately, that prevailed here. This was God's will. He knows the, the number of our days. He knows the number of Nick's days. And so somehow God was present in this. And I wanted to, to say, well, what could I, how could I honor him in it? I so appreciate you wrote the book. Often it's associated to that men are ones that are a bit more silent in their grief. And I think as a community, it's important to encourage everyone to grieve in the way yeah. that's best for them to heal. And this is a beautiful example of ways that men as a community can come together and be free to grieve. No, thank you. I appreciate that. And having interacted with a number of dads who have lost children over the past couple of years, again, there is a I guess a guy way of grieving and uh, we won't grieve generally in the same way as women, but we will still grieve. And I do think it's important for men to talk and to express that grief and not to bottle it up as maybe we're, we're naturally prone to do. And I think something you said earlier is, is important. I, I don't think our society teaches us to grieve well. Um, you know, so you, you mentioned how we used to have a year of grieving and maybe there is something good about that to say, you need this time. And through this time, you'll start to see some progress in your grief. But we, we don't want to stare death in the face. We don't want to really think about death. And so we don't have societally good patterns of grieving or good ways, accepted ways of doing it. Well, this is the Why Me Project podcast. And so I know throughout your life, you've had Why Me moments. And Why Me moments are those moments that can really shape us. So maybe it's something when you were younger, maybe something, you know, closer to 2023, but has there been a moment where you just asked, why me? Yeah, I think it would have to be when when Nick was taken. Um, there was a sense in all of us in the family, why did this happen? And, you know, with a high view that God is sovereign over this world, why did God choose this for our family? And I've got this category in my mind where God just takes some of his beloved people to himself. He loves them more than we do. And he just takes them back. And that's awesome. And that's his prerogative. He's God. I'm not. But there was this moment where I said, why me? Was it something I did? Is this some sort of punishment? Have I done something to to offend God? And this is how he responded. And I think the mm-hmm. the resolution of that why me moment was, no, I'm not the one who's at the center of this universe. And so what happened with Nick was a transaction between God and Nick, not God and and me. And so rather than thinking God is punishing this dad, maybe God just took his, his son that he loves, his child that he loves. And what does that do for me? Why me? Well, maybe God is just calling me then secondarily to something in this, which is to, to be ready and, and willing and able now. He's prepared me 
to be able to minister to people who are going through times of sorrow. And I don't mean a formal out there in the world ministry. I mean, in my neighborhood, in my local church, I've now got what I need to be able to reach out to people in loss in a way I didn't have before and to be able to say, I've been there. Let me tell you what God taught me through that. And let me show you how God, how God spoke to me, how God was real to me in my grief. I wish we could go through those messages and those lessons and be able to help people without like physically going through the pain. <laughs> it would be just so much nicer. <laughs> yeah, we all do. And yet, if we really understand that God is in control in this world, we see that he prepares us in different ways. When we say, we, we sing these hymns to God, you know, all to Jesus, I surrender. Uh, you know, God might just take us at our word. We've got to be careful when we say things like that. Or nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, God. And he says, oh, okay, then there, here we go. And here's my will. And, you know, so we've got to be, we've got to know when we're committing our lives to the Lord, we're committing them all the way. We're not just saying, save me. We're saying, use me as you see fit. So I don't pray for patience. Not ready for those trials. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Seasons of Sorrow, uh, which is available now, jollies.com, uh, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. Uh, at uh, on all the socials as well. Uh, Tim, my friend, we appreciate you taking some time and uh, sharing your heart today. Thank you. It's interesting because before Christmas, we were talking with Mark Barrett and we were talking about the loss of his son and his son, uh, you know, to suicide. Even if you lose your son to suicide or to heart problems or to a car accident, loss is loss and loss. Grief is grief is grief. Yeah, it's it's a loss. And I think that's maybe one of my biggest takeaways from the pandemic is that loss of person is a thing to take a moment or as many moments as you need to process. Loss of hopes and dreams, loss of just we, – we experience loss in so many ways that yeah. if you are going through something and you feel that sense of loss and grief, just take a moment to acknowledge it and and talk to somebody about it. And I will say this until I'm blue in the face, that we don't all grieve the same. There is no right or wrong way to do it. If yeah. you need to scream, do it. If you need to write it out, do it. If you need to sing, do it. Whatever it is, but don't do it alone. That's the other thing, is that reach out and have those conversations with likeness of people or other people going through it. Just have that opportunity to be able to grieve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just so loved our conversation with Tim today. And I mean, yes, it was a hard one. Yes, we're talking about grief and a loss of a child. But just his openness to share what was going on in his heart really was meaningful today. The only other thing that I have, and this mm -hmm. is somewhat serious, somewhat satirical, if you will. Okay. You don't always have to make a lasagna <laughs> when it comes to if you are making meals for a family it doesn't have to be lasagna. Fair enough. <laughs> Switch it up. Give him a skip a dish card or give him a gift card. Lasagna, it's nice. I'm glad that you took the time to do it. Yeah. And bless whatever family that you're making the food for. But it doesn't always have to be lasagna. I think the, one of the best meals that anyone ever gave me was a bag of salad mm. and chicken to throw on top of it. And then a coffee. I just needed yeah. greens and yeah. some protein and yeah. it was like really good lettuce. And I don't know, it was like the best salad I had because it was given to me in love. Speaking of love, love us, please. 
follow us on all the socials um rate and review i know that the the reviews have gone up on our apple podcast i don't know what our, our numbers are at right now halls yeah. but i know that we are creeping up and getting more and more of them yeah, we're getting close to that next level, which I know Apple Podcast looks for. So for those of you who yeah. have, thank you so much for those five-star reviews. And yeah. we just appreciate you walking this journey with us. Yeah, rate, review, follow us on all the socials. And if you do that, tell friends, family members, and complete strangers because we want to continue to grow the projector community. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, and that. What he said. Also, don't forget, you can always check us out, yes, on YouTube for some visuals, but also at faithstrongtoday.com. Yeah.